This is chapter 152 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, penguins and petulant teenagers. A quote attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt goes something like this. Beautiful young people are accidents of nature, but beautiful old people are works of art. And yet, many seniors aren't cherished or even paid that much attention to. Author Hazel Pryor is trying to change that attitude with her new book and the help of some penguins. We recently talked about her new novel, How the Penguins Saved Veronica, which is partly set at a remote research lab in Antarctica. It's also this week's summer read pick. You know, I couldn't help but think it it was almost like a mini quarantine for everybody. You know, like you go to the far ends of the earth and you're stuck with this small group of people and you're only stuck with them. And it it, they kind of it was a lesson in how to isolate. In a way, yes. And it's funny because I thought thought that because in a way um, I sort of live in in an isolated place myself in the countryside in Exmoor. And as with the last book, I think I I seem to write about isolated people generally. (laughs) And um, Veronica, she obviously kind of self-isolates through choice. Um, through a lot of her life and it's only really by going to Antarctica that she sort of um, meets this small little clique of people and um, and starts to open up. It's quite quite sort of ironic, isn't it, the way things work and how relevant that is to the situation at the moment. And I loved this, you know, it's really a heartwarming and whimsical read and you mentioned Veronica who's, you know, she's the, this stubborn, I love this uh, this description in the book, She's spicy as Vindaloo and stubborn as a wild goat, and she has this unlikely trip to to go to Antarctica to save penguins. What inspired it? Well, the very first thing was actually, well, there were two things that really put penguins into my head, and I sort of built the whole story around penguins. So the first thing was that I had the two books deal with Penguin Random House. So um, I was thinking, oh, what should I write my second book about then? And, and, uh, and the kind of idea of penguins was in my head. Um, and the other huge influence was I have a friend who's absolutely obsessed with penguins. She adores them. And she, um, she has a bit of a story of her own, in fact. She was suffering from um, a terrible tragedy. Her husband died very suddenly. And she works in the areas of resilience. And she decided that um, as a way of coping, she would travel around the world and take photographs of every single species of penguin in the wild. Um, She's a really, really good nature photographer. And she decided to do that. And she has actually done that. She's she's got pretty much every one of the 18 species of penguins. I think she's got one left to go. Um, And she's come back with these amazing photographs of penguins from all over the, the world. Well, the penguin populated countries, obviously. Um, and it's given her this enormous sort of boost. And I just really like that idea of sort of some kind of redemption through penguins, who are obviously so charming and so lovely, and yet kind of have a lesson to teach us all, I think, because they've got this feistiness and this resilience in the face of harsh conditions. So I just love them. <laughs> You're lucky she was fascinated with penguins and not something like sharks or bears. <sighs> Yeah, I don't think I would have wanted to write a story about those, no. I mean, I just latched onto this idea of penguins for those two reasons. And then I thought, oh, yes, somebody who travels to see penguins, I like that idea. And then I sort of thought about somebody who who did I want to be my main character. And it obviously wasn't somebody like my friend. It was a completely different character. And then sort of my other inspiration was old people, because I've met so many old people recently who are just, 
so up for a challenge. And I thought, oh, I, want, I actually want to make my heroine somebody who's much older um, and kind of proves that there is life beyond, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 even, that, you know, you can still rise to challenges and do amazing things. Um, I just really like that attitude in people I've met, and, and I think that's right. And we, should, we should, shouldn't just see life as fizzling out, you know, as we get older. We should see it as presenting more challenges and more chances to learn. Did their stories about the war also inform Veronica's story? Yes. In fact, both my parents were, because um, they, they were a lot older, they're sadly no longer with us, but they were both involved in the Second World War. So my father was in the RAF and my mum was a teenager at the time, so she actually would have been contemporary with Veronica. So um, I remember some of the stories they told me. Um, so she was evacuated, her whole school was evacuated to a huge country house in the north of England, so I sort of got that idea from her. And then more recently, the people I've met, um, I, you might remember that I play harp. So that was my first novel was based kind of around harps and harp playing and music and fulfilling your dreams that way. So um, I play harp um, quite often in care homes. And a lot of my audience members there are in their 90s. Um, some are even over 100. So I did go into one of the local care homes and I talked to the residents there and they shared a lot of their memories um, of the war then and, and how different life was for them. My goodness, society has just changed unbelievably much in, in their lifetimes. And I think it, it's so interesting to see how attitudes have changed, how a lifestyle has changed, how everything is just so, so different. But there are similarities too, like they were all living on the, light, the knife edge of war, not knowing what would happen next. And again, you know, there are parallels to the situation we're in now, quite uncanny. I read a, uh, a study that said that more than 40% of seniors experience loneliness. And Veronica is included in that group. And for her, it's partly by choice, partly by circumstance. Why did you want to explore that as well? Well, I think it is, it is a really, really important issue um, and something that maybe we don't think about enough. Um, there are so many isolated people out there. And she, yeah, she has, in a way, self-isolated because she's so disillusioned with the human race because of things that have happened to her. Um, but um, there's a lot in, in all my writing about not judging people, about kind of making that extra leap of the imagination, thinking what might they have gone through which has made them the way they are. So Veronica is actually a very closed person and doesn't open up to other people, so they immediately dismiss her. Like her grandson dismisses her the minute he meets her as being old, boring, um, cold, um, basically. And I think we, we, we all do that when we meet somebody, you know, we judge by appearances. But I think we need to just stand back and think, well, what might have happened in this person's life to make them like this? Um, and just try and be a bit more understanding, give them the benefit, benefit of the doubt a little bit more, maybe. I think that's sort of what I'm trying to say, one of the things I'm trying to say. I won't give anything away by saying that uh, these penguins help to warm her up a little bit. Um, and I, I, I had a laugh every time you described um, a certain emotional reaction that she was having with her eyes. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Yes, I mean, she she will not acknowledge her own warmth of character at all, in fact. She's in denial that she's a human being, I think, at some points. But, yeah, she's, bless her heart, 
she does have a heart, even though she pretends she doesn't. She absolutely does, yeah. Now, have you ever been to Antarctica yourself? No, I haven't. So I did have to do a lot of research there. And what sort of research did you have to undertake to to get the details just right? Because you really do transport the reader to the other side of the world. Good. Well, I did my best. Um, So I had this friend who had photographs of Antarctica and the penguins she saw there. So I spent a lot of time immersing myself in her photographs and quizzing her all about it. Um, and trying to imagine myself there, looking at you know all the visual little details, and of course we have um, a lot of wonderful books. Local libraries provide wonderful books. So I've looked at wonderful books about penguins and the wartime stuff. Got research from there as well, and um, also the wonderful resource of YouTube. So I spent a lot of hours looking at penguins on YouTube and looking at um, Antarctic scenery, um, and also I read some blogs written by scientists in Antarctica. So that, of course, fed um, amazingly into the story that I learned so, so much about it. Um, so, But I think every author has to, has to invent, 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 invent. So even if you haven't been to a place, you know, writing fiction is all about using your imagination and just trying to imagine your way there, trying to imagine as much detail as you can and putting that across to the reader. I think you've also inspired me to to move Antarctica up on that bucket travel list of mine when we finally are able to travel around the world freely again. Oh, good, good, good. Well, I'd love to go there myself, I have to say. Um, it would be fascinating, wouldn't it? I would love for you to bring a copy of your book and leave it in a research station there and just see what happens organically. <laughs> I wonder what they'd all make of it, yes. I did actually speak to an actual scientist who had, well, he's more of a bird specialist, but he lived in Antarctica. And um, I quizzed him about some of his experiences as well, although he was in right in the near the South Pole, so he was kind of a lot further south than Veronica, I thought I couldn't make her go to the extreme cold because at her age, you know, she really might not have survived. (laughs) She's in the South Shetlands, which are far enough south. What do you want readers to take away? Well, I think as with with my first novel, I would just really like them to be fully immersed in the story and just to give them those hours of entertainment because I think that's something really special. Um, And during these times, people just need to escape to escape to books and art as much as possible. So I think that in in itself would be wonderful if I could give them that. Um, but also just a few little things. I mean, there's an underlying um, message about the environment and how important it is. Um, penguins, obviously, um, were, another way I could use them was that the penguin numbers are very, very significant in measuring climate change. So their fluctuations in numbers give scientists a very clear indication about um, environmental issues and how badly the ice is melting and things like that. So so there's kind of little messages in there about valuing our world and what we can do to protect it. Um, so that's another thing I want people to just think about. Um, and also the whole thing about old age, just giving people that respect, thinking this isn't just an old person, this is a person who's full of stories, you don't know what might have happened to them. You know, be interested in their life. And yeah, and I just like to make people more more interested in penguins as well because who doesn't love penguins? I mean, I got more interested in them, in them myself when I was reading it, writing it rather. So um, when reading it, I hope I can sort of convey that enthusiasm across to people. Have you received a lot of little stuffed penguin gifts yet? <laughs> <laughs> I have 
actually bought myself a little cuddly penguin, I will admit, to help me celebrate the publication of this book. Um, And I'm kind of becoming more... I've got a lot of penguin cards, actually, lots and lots of them, all ranged on my bookcase there, Um, and quite a lot of penguin bags and scarves and things. So, yeah, the, the penguin collection is growing. So this book had penguins. Your your prior novel had a plucky pheasant. Um, I know you said you have a two book deal, but when you, when you start writing again, can we expect uh, another avian friend to maybe make its way into your story? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I don't know. Hmm. Shall I tell you? Yes, I'll tell you. You might this time have a fluffy friend instead, not an avian friend. But I think yeah, so there's always got to be an animal, a bird, or something like that in my stories. I love that. I'm a bit potty about wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking with Hazel Pryor. Her new book is How the Penguins Saved Veronica. It's a great, fun read, perfect for cooling off on a hot summer day, I would add as well. <laughs> yes, yes. But there's warmth at the heart of it, though, isn't there? There definitely is. Hazel, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Lovely to speak to you, Lisa. Thank you so much. There's been no shortage of articles written over the last few months about how to survive being cooped up with a teenager. And it's likely been no picnic for the teens either. In her new novel, I Was Told It Would Get Easier, author Abby Waxman explores the strained relationship between a mother and her teenage daughter as they tour colleges together and maybe learn a thing or two about themselves and each other along the way. I recently got to chat with Abby from her home base in Los Angeles. It's the story of a mother called Jessica and her daughter Emily, who's a teenager, and they're taking a tour together to look at colleges on the East Coast. At least that's the the sort of main driver of the book. But it's really about how the two of them have sort of grown apart as, as Emily has become a teenager and how Jessica really wants to reconnect but feels like she apparently can't open her mouth without putting her foot in it. And it just is sort of, you know, it just it's them trying to work out how to communicate as slightly different people, no longer a mother and a little kid, but a mother and a you know, nearly adult. So it's about that. And then I tell it in alternating mother and daughter voices. Was your own personal relationship with a teenager inspiration for it? Oh, of course. No, I have three teenage daughters right now. I have a nearly 18, a 16, and a nearly 13. And, you know, it really is a humbling uh, process to realize that you're not as cool as you thought you were. And that furthermore, your parents were laughing at you the whole time you thought you were being so cool as a teenager because that's certainly been my experience. You know, they'll throw down some some witty um, or sarcastic line and stalk off out of the room, convinced that they have just, you know, issued the coup de grace and it's all over for us. And then my husband and I will just look at each other and burst out laughing because it's so silly. You know, it's, it's the teenagers are just endlessly right, you know, and that's, as an adult, that's something that you really lose. I don't know about you, but as an adult, I frequently feel I have no idea what what I'm supposed to do next in life. So, you know, I love the certainty. I I actually, I think I feel worse for you than I do for Jessica because you're sorely outnumbered. I am outnumbered. Although my husband, you know, my husband and I are a unified team, mostly, or at least, you know, mostly. There are definitely arguments where we we argue about who's doing a better job um, of failing. And then... um, and I do, um, I do have lots of animals. So it's so the animals sort of, and I feed them. So I do have a They're team. They're on your side. <laughs> 
definitely on my side. If push comes to shove, I mean, you know, I think, they, you know, my daughter has her own cat. You know, it's like the, the animals are distributed through the family. Um, but in practice, I am, you know, the lady with the food. So there you go. You mentioned it's written from both their points of view. And I think, you know, anyone who's been a teenage girl can relate to Emily. Anyone who's the mom of a teenager can relate to Jessica. There's that certain subset that subscribe to both. Whose point of view was easier to write? Oh, the mother's for sure, because, like you know, because I just had to respond to what the teenager was saying. And I was also very concerned to try and get it right. There's no way I'll get it. I'll get it completely right. Not to mention the fact that there's no teenager on the planet who's going to admit that an adult got something right. So, you know, it's uh, I'll never really be sure but uh, whether I got it right. But, yes, yeah, the teenager is much harder. And it's also trying to write. Also, I don't you know, it's very hard to know if you're the teenagers you have. I mean, my, my set number is three. I only have three teenagers. It's not very many. It seems like a lot, but it's not very many. And so, you know, I, I can really only assume that I hope other kids respond the way my kids do and that it's therefore representative, but I have no idea. Does that mean your daughters had did, haven't taken a look at it and, and gave you no input, or would they not tell you what they thought anyway if they had looked at it? Both of those things is true. They haven't looked at it. They don't read my work. They, they find the whole thing utterly mortifying. And and if they did, they would be lovely about it because they're actually quite nice, despite the fact that I sound like I'm describing horrors. I'm not. They're lovely kids. <laughs> um, they're just not particularly interested in anything anyone does over the age of 20. So Jessica and Emily, they go on this college bus tour. They each harbor a secret hope that it'll be a good way to spend time with each other after disconnecting. And I couldn't help but think while I was reading it that, you know, in light of COVID and the forced quarantines, there are a lot of parents out there who've spent a lot of quality time with their teens in the recent months and vice versa. That is true. How was quarantine for you with your husband, the pets, the three girls? Um, I'm ashamed to say that it's been fine because I'm very aware that for a lot of people, it's been very, very difficult. But, you know, I was a lazy slob who wore pajamas all day beforehand. (laughs) So there was not a major change for me in terms of my lived experience, right? I was basically, I'm basically still slumming around, getting up every day, going to work, writing, coming home, looking at the the incredibly messy house and thinking, and then not doing anything about it. So that hasn't really changed. The only, the only difference is that my children are around all the time rather than just in school. But, you know, it's been, it's been fine for them too. And the biggest change is that my daughter, oldest daughter, who was going to go to college in the fall, is now not going to go to college in the fall. She's deferring for a year. So in, in some ways, I also just got a bonus year of my oldest child, who I was getting emotionally ready to say goodbye to. And now she's here for another year. So, yeah, it's been... But, it, but you know, apart from this sort of microclimate of my own family, it's been a like, can I say the S word on radio? Absolutely. On, radio, on podcast? On podcast. Okay, it's been a shit show, as you may have noticed, uh, so far in 2020. So, um, yeah, the, the quarantine has sort of felt like we're hiding out from everything that's going on. I know there are a lot of people out there who are just ready for, or they're just ready to throw in the towel on 2020. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's a whole, we're, we're only halfway through. Like, this is the thing. We are halfway through 2020. It is easily the crappiest year. Well, certainly in the 50 years I've been alive, this takes the cake. And then, you know, and the thing is, for the last four years, not to get all political, but for the last four years, each year I thought that was the worst one. You know, and then 2020 is like, hold my beer. Like, <laughs> there, you know, you, you thought that was bad? Try this. 
try a global pandemic. You thought that was bad? Try this. Try, you know, the first real opportunity for racial justice in America. Deal with that at the same time, you know? So it's, yeah, it's been interesting times. It's been interesting times. And it feels like we're all sort of spectators at history because apart from all these amazing young people who've gone out and protested and marched and, and you know, made themselves heard, God bless them, the rest of us, I feel like I was sort of watching it on TV. Who knew the revolution would be televised? The title of your book, I think a lot of people are feeling it right now. Yeah, like what the hell? Well, you know, I think that's sort of a more fundamental problem, isn't it? You always hope that, the, you know, the, the long arc of history goes up, right? And that life gets better and that life will be better for your kids than it was for you and better than it was for your parents, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That seems to be like a fundamental aspect of the human condition. We want things to be better for the next generation. And I, I just feel like at the moment, it seems like, you know, the younger generation is saying, you know, you're taking too long to make it better for us. And I think we, we should sort of take over from here. And I kind of think we should let, let them have it. You know, I don't think that the boomers, sorry, mum, did all that great a job. And I'm Generation X. And I think we sort of stand, you know, we're sort of standing around. And I think it's time to give someone else a chance, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think, you know, there's something to be said for young passionate people who have ideas. Absolutely. And I think you, as, as we all grow older, we, we all have these ideas, right? As teenagers, we're all passionate. We care so deeply and have so much energy, not to mention sheer physical flexibility, that we can march for hours and wave signs and care, you know, and do the work that's required to actually make change. And then as you get older, you start sort of compromising or you decide, well, it's not realistic. Or this. And then what you end up with is, you know, a clown in the White House no offense to the clowns, and, you know, society really not being in any way fair, you know, for, for really far, far, far too big a, a section of the population, which is so un-American. So, you know, it's, yeah, she said, as a half British, half American person, of course. <laughs> okay. your, your book kind of touches on that, too, about things not being fair for, for people, because, you know, you you get into how crazy the college application process has become. You know, there's a little bit of current events in there in terms of what some parents are doing to get their kids into these schools. And right. Although I have to tell you that I had written, I wrote it before all of that happened. So I was like, oops, you know, <laughs> shit, that really goes on. So I was exaggerating. <laughs> Apparently not. And it's in your neck of the woods, uh, yeah. too. It's in, you know, it's a, you oh, know, it's California based. Yeah, my, my, my eldest daughter was at the same school as one of those kids. But, you know, we'll gloss over that. Were you a crazy college mom? Are you a crazy college mom? No, not at all, actually. Although, you know what? You should ask my daughter because she, my oldest daughter would probably say that I was um, that I was a crazy college mom. And uh, but no, I hope not. Like I don't. I'm not completely convinced. And luckily, neither is my husband. That college is is a prerequisite for you know success anymore. I think it used to be. Um, Certainly when I went to college, when it was affordable, the state paid your tuition and you came out, you know, having had three years of, in England, three years of spirited debate, you know, far too much sex and, you know, a couple of personal revelations. And you go off and get a job without being massively in debt. These days you come out of college, especially in this country, and you're far, you know, deeply, deeply in debt. Not even just like, yeah, you owe your mum 500 bucks. It's like you owe the, you know, you owe the loan company tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And how can anybody start out in life with that kind of weight on their shoulders? Like it, it means that they can make no choice for their future career that is in any way charitable 
or that, you know, allows them to take a risk or explore. You know, it's really sad. We're wasting those those precious early 20s years of people, you know, forcing them to, to service a debt instead of society. And then a pandemic comes yeah, along like and it. everyone's out of a job. Exactly. Like, no wonder they're pissed. You know, I'm pissed for them. That You know, these are my, my children's generation for them. But yeah, I think Gen X's job is to hold the door for Generation Z and the millennials, I think. Pay the bills, bail them out, hold the door open and, you know, clear the way so they can show us what they want to do. So you predicted the future with, with this book. What are you uh, writing next? Is it something we should brace ourselves for? Oh, God. No, it's, um, no, based on my previous success at predicting the future, I've written a book entirely about an, a middle-aged, overweight novelist who becomes, strangely, the president of the world. No, it's not at all like that. It's, um, the next book is about is actually much more like Nina, the bookish life of Nina Hill, which is the book before this last one. It's another book set in Larchmont about a, a young millennial woman who moves to Los Angeles and sort of falls in love with herself and then falls in love with someone else. I hope it's good. I'm still finishing it. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that. I was, I like the bookish life of Nina Hill. I liked. I was. I was told it would get easier. So I have a feeling I'm going to like what you're working on now. I hope so. And if not, you can always throw it away. I can't throw books away. It's okay. Well, you can give it away. There is that. I do like to find books yeah. good homes. Like people, there are people who like to find stray cats good homes. I like to find books good homes. Yes, and I think that's a noble, a noble job. We've been talking with Abby Waxman. The new book is I Was Told It Would Get Easier. Thank you for spending some time with us to to talk about that and everything else we covered. It was really a very enjoyable conversation. Oh, you're super welcome. It was absolutely my pleasure. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we hit the road with National Geographic and their trio of books chock full of vacation ideas close to home. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.